Good morning, church. Today's scripture is Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 17. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, everybody. I love baby dedications. Being a dad is one of the great joys of my life. Um, it is really, really difficult, though, to keep uh, the attention of elementary age kids, right? Uh, I appreciate all of you who are on elementary school, middle school teachers. Anybody a teacher in here? Yeah, I see you back there. Somebody in the first service was sitting back there, too. Um, I, uh, I really appreciate, as I've kind of learned from some elementary school teachers, I'm not too ashamed to say I've learned from TikTok videos and from Instagram reels of elementary school teachers that, that have this power and this command to get kids to pay attention um, because it's really, really tough to do that. I have three little kids of my own, um, and I struggle with that. But what they do is they have all these, they have these like little clap rhythms and the kids respond with the own, you know, this rhythm they know, or this call and response. They'll say something and the kids say something back. And then all of a sudden all the kids are paying attention. And so I was like, I, I could do that. I know how to do that. And so I figured with my eight and six and four-year-old boys, I would just make up my own. Um, and so I tried it out. I have the quiet coyote, but he's not a silent coyote. He's a quiet coyote, and he whispers unintelligibly, okay? So he's like, and then I talk to him. I know it sounds really strange. Stick with me. I'm like, is that right, Mr. Coyote? You, what did you say? Oh, I did not know that. And you know what happens every single time? My kids lift up the coyote to their ear. They want to hear the whispers of the quiet coyote. Um, and I promise you, it's never anything interesting. It's never like, you get candy. It's nothing like that. <laughs> it's always like, go brush your teeth, your breath smells, you know? <laughs> um, but why does this work? I, I've been trying to figure out why does this work? And I think, I think it's because of how unusual it is. It, it, it breaks them out of the rhythm and the routine of what they're doing, whether that's talking to each other or playing or reading a book or whatever they're doing, playing a game. It breaks the, the rhythm of what they're doing enough to just let them pay attention for a few moments so they can hear what I'm saying. And I've realized as I've walked through the book of Revelation over the last five, six, seven, eight weeks, that that is the way that this book functions for us as believers. There's something about the nature of Revelation that's trying to keep us off balance, trying to interject with something unusual in order to get our attention. Because I get stuck in a, in, in a rut, in a rhythm. Maybe you know this rut and this rhythm. You're busy. 
And then when you're busy, you start to get stressed. And in response to stress, you either procrastinate, which never helps. I promise you, it never helps. Or you work harder, you go into overdrive, you work more and more, and then you get busier and busier. And then pretty soon, something that was a busy week turns into a busy month, turns into busy years, a busy season, a busy stage of life. And it's like you can't escape the hustle. You can't escape the hurry. I'm late. I'm busy. I'm stressed. I have no time. And all of a sudden, I realize this pattern is not the pattern of a life that's lived in faith in a living God. This is not the pattern of a Christian who is walking by the power of the Holy Spirit in their life. This is the pattern of the culture we live in. It's a pattern of self-dependence. I need something. I need anything that will just jolt me awake, throw me off balance just a little bit. Why? So that just like my kids can stop and pay attention and hear what I say to them, we can stop and we can listen and we can hear what the Holy Spirit might say to us. That's my prayer for this morning, is that God would have our attention. Let's, let's pray to that end. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for scripture. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in uh, even something as strange as Revelation. We pray that we would hear what the Spirit might say to us here this morning that that same spirit that lives in us, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, we know is the spirit that authored these words. So speak fresh. Move us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Keith, and uh, for those of you who are new here or visiting for the first time, what a time to visit. We are in the middle of the, the series on Revelation um, and uh, Revelation is very lighthearted and easy to preach through, and so you came at a great time. Uh, we are covering chapters 8, 9, there's more, 10, and 11. So because we're going through four chapters of Revelation this morning, I'm going to mostly kind of stay up in the air, but I'll touch down from time to time with some specific scriptures. I think it would be really helpful for you to have a physical Bible in front of you as we go through this, or at least a Bible app. If you don't have a Bible with you, raise your hand and one of our ushers will bring a copy of God's Word to you. We have them in English and in Spanish. If you prefer Spanish and that's your heart language, you can ask for that. If you don't own a copy, this is yours. It's a gift for you. Please hang on to it. Keep it. Um, so before we jump much further into this, yeah, a couple right down here. Uh, quick refresher on the book of Revelation. Revelation was written late in the first century. A uh, couple right here, Jill. Late in the first century by a man named John. And John was one of Jesus' followers. He wrote this from an island because he was in exile for his faith. The Roman Empire had sent him away, and he's sitting on an island called Patmos, and he gets this revelation about Jesus, and he writes it as a letter to churches in what's now modern-day Turkey. But these are Christians in these churches that are living under the tyranny of the Roman Empire. 
and many of them are under the threat of forced deconversion. Otherwise, they may be killed for their faith. And so there's this sense, uh, temptation to maybe hide, to be fearful, maybe to compromise your faith, to not identify with Jesus publicly. Otherwise, you might be killed for your faith. And, and many were. In fact, in Revelation 2, we read about a man named Antipas who was killed for his faith. In Revelation 6, we read the, the prayers of the martyrs. Their blood is crying out from the ground for vengeance. They're praying to God. Uh, many were being killed for their faith. So John writes this letter as a, as a charge to remain courageous to these Christians. Stay awake. Uh, it's a letter that's written to real people in a real place at a real time, but it's also God's prophetic word, which means it's representative of the mind and the will of God declared, made known to us. This is what God wants all believers in all times and all places to hear from him. And lastly, you'll remember if you've been going through this series with us, it's something called apocalyptic. And apocalyptic, it sounds really scary. It's not that scary, actually. It's a genre that uses images, symbols, metaphors that sometimes are a little shocking, a little um, jarring to us, sometimes even horrifying, that's meant to wake us up out of our slumber, out of our complacency, so that somehow God can get our attention and tell us the way that the world really is. Imagine a curtain, and God is pulling back the curtain so that we can see behind the scenes what is actually going on in the world. That's what apocalyptic is, and that is where we're going to live this morning in the shocking and strange. Uh, God wants our attention. He wants to wake us up. He does not want us to live in a place of complacency. How will he get our attention. So the first way he's going to get our attention is with silence. Read uh, verse 1 of chapter 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. That was eight seconds. So if you felt really uncomfortable, I want you to imagine half an hour of total silence. The sixth and the seventh chapters of Revelation, is there's all this buildup. There's six seals that are broken. Each one gets more and more intense, more and more intense. And then we finally get to this place of the seventh seal, the completion of the series. And we're expecting this one is going to be the most strange and shocking and horrifying one yet. But what happens? It's total silence. God hushes the heavens. God quiets down the angels. It's like a classroom with an expert teacher who has the quiet coyote held up. Everyone is wrapped with their attention. They're waiting. There's anticipation. What is about to happen? What is God planning? Read verse 2. I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. Now a censer, if you don't know, it's kind of like it's a rod with a little, almost like an inverted bell on top. And so there's, there's embers and smoke and things inside of that. Um, a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. So this, the sense here of what's happening is 
the prayers of God's people are coming up to heaven and the angels are taking them and they're mixing them with incense and they're putting them in these censers and it's an offering to God. Have you ever sat with a friend who is a really good listener? I mean, a really good listener. Somebody who's not, they're not divided. They're not distracted. They're not texting somebody while you're talking to them and saying, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Somebody who's, uh, who's making eye contact with you and they're uh, listening in quiet to what you have to say. How do you feel in those moments? You feel loved, seen, known, heard, right? I hope all of you have a friend like that. I feel fortunate to have many friends like that. Um, This is the scene of God in the throne room. He has quieted down the heavens. Why? So he can hear the prayers of his people. And not only is he listening to the prayers, he's saying, shh, I want to hear these prayers. God's not too busy to hear your prayers. He's not too occupied to hear the prayers of his people. There's nothing too minor. There's nothing too raw. There's nothing too unfiltered to bring to God in prayer. He's listening. And what happens next is is amazing because he takes the prayers of his people and like I said, he mixes it with this incense, puts it in the golden censers, and then the angels take the censers and they start throwing the prayers down onto the earth. What's happening here? God is not only listening to our prayers, he is using our prayers. And he is acting in the world on our behalf with our prayers. He's using our prayers to enact history. Prayer is not an empty monologue to a distant God. Prayer is not a robotic recitation shouted into the wilderness. God hears. God listens. And most importantly, God acts. Remember what the first century Christians are praying. Remember the frame of mind they must have been in. They're praying, how long, O Lord, will this injustice prevail on this world? How long, O God, until you come and make everything right? How long, O God, before your kingdom comes and your will is done on earth as it is in heaven? How long? And the answer to that question then comes in the form of the second symbol that's meant to to jar us, to wake us up. It's the blast of seven trumpets. Look at verse 6 of chapter 8. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. And then, guys, this is where stuff starts to get wild. (laughs) Welcome to Revelation. This is what follows, okay? Hail is mixed with blood and fire that destroys a third of the earth's trees and all of the grass. A fiery mountain is thrown into the sea and it turns a third of the sea to blood and kills a third of the sea creatures and a third of the ships. A star falls out of heaven and poisons a third of the fresh water supply on earth. A third of the sun and moon and stars are turned to darkness. An eagle then flies out over the middle of earth and cries, whoa, whoa, whoa. The bottomless pit 
it gets, it gets weirder and weirder. The bottomless pit opens up and an army of demon scorpion locusts come out to torment people on earth who are not sealed by God. And then another demonic army comes with 200 million horse riders who bring war and death from the four corners of the earth. I just, no one has any questions, right? Nobody's. I have so many questions as I, as I read through this. So many questions. And um, I'll give you my thoughts on a few of the most common questions as we enter into it. But I want you to know there are brilliant, brilliant, highly educated women and men who share very different opinions about these texts. And so I bring you my humble guess as to what some of this means. Um, I think that these trumpets, first of all, are another way to tell the same story that's laid out in the seals from chapters 6 and 7, and then again are going to be told with the seven bowls. And that's the story that begins with the resurrection of Jesus and ends with the restoration of the world, Jesus' return, and all the space in between that we now call the age of the church. I do think... um, that these are applying specifically to the Roman Empire. Because remember, who's this written to? Christians under Roman tyranny who are fearful that they're going to be killed by the Romans. So it is written to be judgment against the Roman Empire. But more than that, it's actually written to all human empires in all places at all times. So um, another thing that I think is really important to remind you of as we, before we go, too much further is there's nothing new in Revelation. Everything we see in Revelation is from the other 65 books of the Bible. We don't need to be afraid of Revelation, even though it seems a little scary. Uh, Most of uh, Revelation's imagery that John uses, uh, it's specifically from the Old Testament, and it's it's used in a way to reapply it, to reimagine it, to give it new meaning, and usually to expand the meaning and the significance of what we see from the Old Testament, okay? So there's a really good chance that anywhere you see a symbol or an image or a beast, or a creature, or a metaphor, or a number, or a word, or a phrase, or something that we don't understand, it is a link back to somewhere in the Old Testament, okay? Um, These trumpets and these plagues, they are no different. No different. I'll start with the trumpets. There is a story in the Old Testament that I believe we're meant to think of when we hear the words seven trumpets. It's a story of Israel after they have been taken out of slavery in Egypt. They've wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. They're standing at the edge of what the land that God has promised to them. And God says he needs to take care of evil and injustice in that land before he gives the land over to the people. And so they're standing at the edge of this military installation, this fortress. It's kind of like Davis Monthan, but less technologically advanced. There's no planes or anything like that. Um, And they're standing there, and God says, you are going to win the victory against this army. But there's a problem, because Israel is an agrarian, nomadic shepherd people. They don't have any weapons at all. Their weapons are shepherd's hooks, right? Um, They've been wandering through the—they're not highly trained soldiers. They're wandering through the wilderness for 40 years. And so God says, not to worry. What you're going to do is I'm going to win the victory— 
And what you're going to do is you're going to hold these seven trumpets. You're going to march around the walls of this fortress. It's called Jericho for seven days. And on the seventh day, you're going to blast the seven trumpets and I will give the victory to you. Okay. So we're meant to think of the seven trumpets from Jericho, but it's an expansion of the imagery from Jericho. John's using this to make us think of coming into the promised land, but he expands the meaning. Now it's not just Canaan, the promised land for the Israelites. It's the whole creation being remade and restored and renewed that we're coming into. Now it's not just the end of Jericho, it's the end of evil and injustice and idolatry on God's good world. Okay, so the trumpets, they're meant to link us back to Jericho, but what about the plagues that follow the trumpets. Well, this is how God is going to enact this plan to rid the world of evil, is through a series of new exodus plagues. New exodus plagues. So, more history lesson here. Before God's people were at Jericho, they were enslaved in a foreign empire, Egypt, for 400 years. They had, started, they had started to forget who God was. They were well-versed in the cultural norms of Egypt and its gods, but God intervened. He stepped in. He sent a deliverer, a man named Moses, and Moses went straight to the top. He went straight to the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, and he said, let my people go. And Pharaoh was like, okay, cool, sure. <laughs> no, he said no. No, absolutely not. And then one plague at a time gets initiated against Pharaoh, against Egypt, with the intention of what? Repentance. Repent from what you're doing here, Pharaoh. Repent from your worship of other gods. Let my people, deliver my people. That's the intention. And so between each plague, repent, and Pharaoh says no, and he hardens his heart. Repent, and Pharaoh says no, and he hardens his heart. And that series goes on. So what is what is going on here in Revelation's version of the Exodus plagues? Uh, here's a side-by-side comparison so you can see how similar these are. Okay, so hail. There's hail in Exodus. Water turned to blood. There's water that's turned to blood in Exodus. The order is a little bit different, you can see, but it's obvious that John is trying to make this link back to the Exodus, back to these plagues, to remind us of what he did to deliver Israel and what he asked the empire to do, repent, right? But there's one huge major difference between the plagues in Exodus 7 through 12 and the plagues in Revelation 8 through 9, and that is the severity of the plagues. You can see, I I wrote out the increased severity on the side there. If you want to take a picture, you can. Each one of these plagues, I mean, it's just turned up, right? Um, The intensity, the severity of it. Why? Why is it so much more severe in the Revelation plagues versus the Exodus plagues? Well, in the Exodus, God was trying to get the attention and the repentance of one man and one empire. In In the Revelation, God is trying to get the attention of all men, of all humanity, and all empires, God will not stand for idolatry of any kind. And so that's why there's an increased severity here. Um, But we don't 
we don't need to protect God's reputation. We look at this, and this is one of the things that I, I feel like it's my job sometimes as a preacher. I come up here, and I'm like, okay, you know, God is just. He, he has judgment, but I want to under kind of emphasize that a bit because it feels a little scary. It's a little hard to walk into, but we don't need to protect God's reputation. God is good, and God is just. Both of those things are true. And uh, these plagues, while they are terrifying, while people do die, um, God's judgment is not a blight against his record. It is not a blight against his record. Uh, I want, before I go in further, I want to recommend a book to everybody. Uh, this is a book called The Skeletons in God's Closet. It is an excellent book that uh, the, the subtitle is The Mercy of Hell, The Surprise of Judgment, and the Hope of Holy War. Uh, very provocative title there. Uh, I have two copies left of this, and so if you want a copy of this after the service, come find me, and I'd be happy to, to give this to you. It's been very helpful to me. Um, God's judgment seems like a blight, but what about to people who have suffered intense suffering and injustice at the hands of others? What about to people who have endured violence? Uh, from our cozy couch in America, from our suburban homes, it is really easy for us to cringe at God's judgment coming on the world, but God's judgment is a comfort and a hope to those who have been victims of evil and injustice in our world. This is what Miroslav Volf says in one of his books. Imagine speaking to people whose cities and villages have been plundered, then burned, leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die. If God were not angry, hear this, if God were not angry at injustice and deception, and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. So yeah, God uses severe language. He does. He uses horrifying imagery here. He uses shocking pictures to tell us what? Evil is not safe in this world. Amen? Amen. He tells us that idols are demons, and demons are not our friends to be worshipped. The trumpet blast is a declaration of war against sin and evil and injustice and idol worship because it will not stand in God's good world. No idol is safe, not military might, not economic prosperity, not scientific advancement, not our comfort, not our entertainment, not our pleasure, not our friends, nothing. God wants our repentance and he wants us to put our hope and our faith and our trust in him and in nothing and no one else. But tragically, the response of humanity is not repentance. Look at what it says in nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 20 and 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, what? Did not repent of the works of their hands. They did not repent, repent of their idol worship. In fact, they doubled down on it. And just like Pharaoh didn't repent after each plague, our tendency as human beings is to harden our hearts against God. So when we hear that trumpet blast as believers, as followers of Jesus who've been given a new heart, a soft heart, will we listen and repent? I pray we will. I pray we will. 
Does God have your attention yet? The last symbol that God uses to um, get our attention. The two witnesses. So there's six trumpets. They all blast. We saw what, the, what happens there. And then there's this interlude, and there's an angel. And with one foot, he's standing on the sea. And with one st- foot, he's standing on the land. And he's talking to John. He reveals some mysterious thing about the future. But he says, don't write that down. And then he tells John, listen, there's going to be no more delay. No more delay. The kingdom is going to come on earth as it is in heaven. But first, he gives John and he gives the church a task, a job. There is a job at hand between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. They need to go and prophesy again, it says in chapter 10, to kings and nations and peoples. They need to share the message of the gospel with people. The scene here in chapter 11 is of these two witnesses, and I believe that these two witnesses are representative of the church at all times and all places, the church globally right now. They are described as lampstands, which is a link back to chapter 1. That's how the church is described. And also, they're given the, the task of sharing the testimony, the word of God, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection and return with the world. That's their job. They're described with more Old Testament imagery because it's Revelation, so it's always going to link back to the Old Testament somehow. They're described with the courage of Daniel in the midst of exile. They're described with the boldness of Moses to speak with the Pharaoh. They're described with the faith of Elijah who calls down fire from the heavens. They are called to boldly proclaim the truth of Jesus to the world, even though the message is met with resistance, and even more than resistance— it's met with violence. In fact, it says in verse 7 of chapter 11 that a beast is raised up. We'll get to him later <laughs> in the series. And he kills the two witnesses. He kills the church. And the people of the world, they rejoice. Look at verse 10 of chapter 11. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. It's like Christmas morning to them because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. It looks like, in the end, empire wins. It looks like idol worship wins. Like the message of the gospel has been extinguished. Like the church is dead. But, there's always a but. Look at verse 11. But, After three and a half days, a breath of life from God, the Spirit of God enters them, and they stand up on their feet, and a great multitude, or great fear, fell on those who saw them. Folks, the enemy is not going to get the last word. God breathed life into these two witnesses. He breathed life into his dead church. He raises the church up so that the world would know and glorify King Jesus. And the church then, in this picture, the witnesses become a mirror image of Jesus. Crucified and resurrected. The church martyred and raised from the dead. And the result, unlike the judgment result, where everybody hardens their hearts and they refuse to repent, the result of this is miraculous conversion. 
Look at what it says in verse 13. At that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest, the 90%, were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. 90% come to faith in Jesus because of what? The suffering witness of the church. We have a task. We have a job. We have a job in this world, church. Are we awake enough to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church? Does he have our attention? We will not win people over with violence. We will not win people over with culture war. We won't. We will not win people over with our fancy apologetics, with our lofty speech, with our intelligent sermons and arguments, with our booklets. We will win people over by imitating Christ in his death and his resurrection. Amen? We will win people over by imitating him in sacrificial love and service, by imitating him in nonviolence, in loving our enemies, in his persecution, in his suffering, and yes, even in his death. We're naive. We're naive if we think that sharing the good news of Jesus with people will not be met with resistance. People might think you're weird. People, it, it might make you uncomfortable. It might make others uncomfortable. But we do a great disservice to the true martyrs of the church when the reason we won't share our faith is we think we're being persecuted because we feel uncomfortable. There's real violence that happens to Christians who hold, hold to the firm good news of Jesus crucified and risen. And we will be met with resistance. But God will raise us. That is the hope of the gospel. That's the hope of the gospel for the martyrs in the first century who are waiting to be risen from the dead. That is the hope of the global church that is praying even today on the Lord's day, waiting like we are, that he will raise us up from the dead and he will restore this world and rid it of, of evil and injustice. And someday that seventh trumpet will sound. And this is what will happen when the seventh trumpet sounds. The angel blew the trumpet and there were loud voices. This is the opposite of the seventh seal. It's not silence. Loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. There is a day that is coming, folks. It is a real day that is coming in human history when our prayers will be answered. There is a day that is coming when God will in fact bring heaven down to earth. When his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And all, all who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus will be raised from the dead to stand with him, to see him face to face, to walk in a restored and a renewed creation free from sin. So our job is to pray with those first century saints. God, would your kingdom come? Would your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Our job is to pray to a God who hears our prayers and enacts them in the world. Our job is to repent, to not look like the world and its empires, 
to repent of the ways that we worship other things other than God. Our job between the sixth and the seventh trumpet is to boldly, boldly embody the suffering witness of Jesus Christ in the world, to share the good news of hope with people in grace and in truth. And someday, someday soon, that seventh trumpet will blow and God will make the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that day cannot come soon enough. Everywhere we turn, every article on news apps is about just the intense suffering and injustice in our world. But you see it all and you hold it all and you are guiding history toward its ultimate conclusion of that seventh trumpet blasting when your kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. So God, help us to pray with boldness knowing that you hear us. Help us to repent of the ways that we've knowingly and unknowingly aligned ourselves with idolatry of the empire. Help us, O oh God, to not be afraid to bring the, the message of hope and reconciliation and joy, the message of, of Jesus to our neighbors without fear. Give us courage, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.